0: but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast's October extravaganza. This month I have released a few bonus podcasts slash videos for your October viewing slash listening pleasure. They have included some of our most beloved horror villains killer mothers and a little bit of storytelling I'm getting a lot of really good feedback a lot of feedback that you want me to continue doing some of the storytelling so I will do that but I'll dedicate a specific playlist for that for those that are not typically interested in listening to stories Now, if you are enjoying this series or anything else I do, then like, subscribe, consider being a sponsor. Every little bit helps. And I especially want to thank a few of my patrons, Galen, Emma, John, and Judy. So our next October extravaganza podcast will be on a murdering mother, Megan Huntsman. Now, Megan was born on February 27, 1975, in what I believe is Pleasant Grove, Utah. So let's get into some history for that time. The average cost for a reasonable car was around $4,200, and a gallon of fuel was just 44 cents a gallon. A house on average, would have cost you about $12,000, and a typical yearly income was around $14,000. In the United Kingdom, Margaret Thatcher became the first female conservative party leader. This is also the year that the Vietnam War finally ended. The U.S. gathered up the Vietnamese orphans and took them back to the U.S. to find families to adopt them. The movie Jaws was released this year, as was Young Frankenstein, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Newspaper heiress Patty Hearst, who had been kidnapped by the leftist group who called themselves SLA, Symbionese Liberation Army, I hope I pronounced that correctly, the year before, took part in an armed robbery with that group. She later claimed Stockholm Syndrome. Also in 1975, the US and the Soviet Union had a joint effort in a space flight. The Green March, with 350,000 unarmed Moroccans, crossed the border into the Spanish controlled area of Western Sahara, demanding the return of the Moroccan Sahara Desert. And then, of course, Jimmy Hoffa, ex Teamsters boss, disappeared this year, never to be found. Saturday Night Live debuted on NBC this year, and popular music was being created by Pink Floyd, The Who, Led Zeppelin, John Lennon, Elton John, and Black Sabbath. So this was the atmosphere that Megan was born into. Her parents were Blaine Huntsman and Joyce Nelson. Blaine, who was born in 1950 in Utah County, Utah, grew up in Manila, which is very north and quite near the Wyoming state line. Now, growing up, it appears he was very active in sports, loved woodworking, and was very close to his family. His father was originally from Nevada, but his mother was a native of Utah. Overall, we get the sense that his family was fairly all-American, typical, nothing that indicated he was abused or neglected in any way. Now, I didn't really find anything about Joyce. She was born in 1953, but I don't know where. I make an assumption that she was also born in Utah. There was no information on her background at all, but there's no stories that stood out specifically that Joyce was abused or neglected in any way. So Blaine married Joyce on September 16, 1971 in Indian Springs, Nevada, and both belonged to the Mormon faith. Megan's father worked as an industrial painter, and her mother worked at a local grocery store, but also had had jobs elsewhere. All of the children, as far as I could find, were treated fairly and were loved. School photos of Megan show that she was clearly well taken care of. She wore nice clothing, sported the popular hairstyles, and so on. But Megan's family was again quite active in the Mormon church. Growing up, she had two younger sisters. Megan was the oldest. And I wasn't really able to find any specific stories about her childhood either, at least her earlier childhood. But classmates from Pleasant Grove High School did speak about the many sleepovers with Megan at her parents' house, as well as hiking trips to a nearby canyon. Again, looking at her yearbook photo from 1993, which was her senior year, shows an average young woman smiling softly. Really, the only thing that I could find regarding Megan's personality was that she was extremely shy and quiet. Her own siblings and her mother attested to that in later testimony. I didn't get the sense that she was particularly overly achieving or hard on herself. It felt more like she was introverted and average, which is not a bad thing. Joyce would later say that Megan was very quiet and kept to herself, that she never wanted to ask for help, rarely sharing personal details of her life with anyone, so she was intensely private. And she grew more secretive after she got pregnant in high school and moved out at the age of 18 to marry the father. We do know that at some point she met Darren West and they began dating. She found out that she had become pregnant during her senior year and the couple married in April of 1993 when Megan was, like I said, 18 years old. Sources say she hid that pregnancy from everyone until right up to when she was due. Darren himself had already graduated high school. He had joined in the Marine Reserves and was studying at Utah Valley Community College. His parents owned a rather nice, modest, middle-class home in a good neighborhood and let the young couple live there. Darren went on to work in construction, and Megan began to clean houses and babysit for extra money. Their first daughter, Darian, was born later that same year, 1993. The next year, Megan had their next daughter, J.C. It is interesting to note that, yet again, Megan took great care in concealing this pregnancy as well until she was nearly due. And for the young family, though, things seemed to be off to a good start. Only sometime after J.C.'s birth, the couple began experimenting with drugs. Experimentation turned into full-blown addiction to methamphetamine. Both Darren and Megan used every day. Megan later admitted that her addiction was all-consuming. It has been said that their marriage, quote, decayed into substance abuse and violence, unquote, according to statements Megan had made to people who were close to her at that time. According to Megan and her family, quote, she had black eyes and was embarrassed to tell anyone about it, to tell people what had happened unquote, said one of her uncles. Quote, it was pretty severe. She would not come around for long periods of time, unquote. It is important to also note that the police said they never received any complaints of domestic abuse from this home. Then again, a family member said they didn't know about the methamphetamine that ruled the couple's lives. Now, I realize most of us know exactly what a meth addiction looks like, but I want to get into that for just a bit for those who might not. And keep in mind, addiction and the effects are different for different people. This is just an overview. In general, people who use meth have mood swings that go from euphoria to anxiety to depression. They most often socially isolate. They hide their drug use from others, obviously. They act rather impulsive, partake in dangerous or otherwise risky behaviors. They have relationship problems, violent behaviors, aggression, and develop a, quote, binge, crash pattern of abuse. Most lose their appetite, often not eating for long periods of time, leading to severe weight loss. They can tremble and shake not able to stand or sit for any real length of time. They sometimes have hair loss, often develop open sores on their bodies from constant picking, insomnia to the point that they stay awake for days and days on end. Their cheeks can become grotesquely sunken in and their teeth begin to turn black and rot. They can develop heart problems and liver damage but the psychological effects are nothing to joke about they include nervousness repetitive behaviors disorganized thoughts hallucinations meth bugs or the sensation of bugs crawling underneath their skin they have paranoia and sometimes psychosis so bear that in mind And during this time, though she was apparently, and rather effectively, raising her two daughters, she became pregnant again. This time, she told no one at all. In fact, no one even suspected it. She did what most women who do want to hide their pregnancies do. She wore baggy clothing and she didn't leave the house much. She continued to use meth during the entire pregnancy, and once she went into labor, she quietly gave birth in her own home alone. I don't know specifically if it was while her daughters and her husband were out of the house, but needless to say, no one heard her giving birth. Once it was over and she had delivered the baby, she had to make a very quick decision. The baby or the addiction. So, she put her thumbs on the baby's neck, choked it to death, even putting a hair tie around its neck to, quote, make sure it was dead. She then wrapped it in some cloth, put it inside of a plastic bag, and then put that into a shoebox and placed it in a box in the garage that was labeled Christmas. Christmas. Once she even gave birth in the bathroom while her husband, his brother, and his brother's wife were in the living room watching TV. I kid you not. She convinced herself that there was no way that she would be able to take care of a baby and use at the same time. She felt she had no other option. But she did have another option. She had options, actually, and the most secretive one you can do is actually legal in Utah. See, in Utah, there is a, quote, safe haven law, meaning a birth parent can hand his or her baby to any hospital employee, and from there, the baby is taken to the emergency room, where staff will check for any health concerns. At that time, the Division of Child and Family Services is called and arrangements are made to place the baby for immediate adoption. If an infant is left at a safe haven hospital, which just means that the hospital is open 24 hours, the mother remains anonymous and will not be reported to the police, be investigated, or be criminally prosecuted. So you see, free and clear. No harm. No foul. Walk in, hand over the baby, leave. But instead, Megan chose to murder her infant. Not long after, she became pregnant again and again and did the same to this baby that she did to the first, giving birth inside of the home and suffocating or strangling the baby, which was then wrapped in cloth then a plastic bag, inside of a box, and just discarded in the garage. Then, in 2000, she found out she was pregnant again. This time, her pregnancy did not go unnoticed. At some point, she was forced to face the fact that she was going to have to have this baby. This is when she and Darren had another daughter they named Sawyer. By all accounts, Sawyer was born healthy. We would have to assume that she might have been born addicted to meth, but then again, since this pregnancy was found out about, she might have stopped using during that time. I just don't know. Now, between having Sawyer and 2006, Megan would become pregnant five more times. She was pregnant at least once a year. Each time she kept the pregnancy a secret, silently gave birth either in the bathroom or literally on her bed, murdered the infant nearly as soon as it was born, in under two minutes, then hid the tiny bodies in her garage and cleaned up the mess from her labor. Now a couple of times Darren did suspect, but Megan would tell him that she had miscarried and in fact, he later admitted to knowing about a couple, quote unquote, of the pregnancies. He said, quote, I knew she was pregnant, but I was so messed up on freaking drugs, I didn't know what was going on, unquote. So we have to assume that she went right back to everyday life as if nothing happened. However, one of the five babies was a legitimate stillbirth so it had passed as she was in labor. But in total, all of the pregnancies and all of the babies had been full-term babies. People that knew her during the time when she was killing her infants would say that they might see her in passing somewhere and that she looked and acted completely normal. Neighbors that were questioned said that they had noticed that Megan's weight would fluctuate over the years, going from baggy to tight clothes, but they firmly denied ever knowing that she was actually pregnant. She was a small and petite woman as it was, who very much kept to herself and didn't really interact with anyone outside of just a handful of people. So sometime in 2005, the police were alerted to the fact that Darren was receiving mail-ordered methamphetamine ingredients from manufacturing. They came to the house and asked if they could enter and look around and Megan let them in. And while they did do a light search in the garage, they didn't find the bodies of the babies. They did find enough drug paraphernalia though to arrest Darren and Afterwards, he was convicted on drug charges in 2006 and sent to prison. Now, since her husband was her supplier, she was kind of forced to stop the meth habit, except she substituted one addiction for another, being alcohol. It would be booze and depression that would rule her life after her husband had been taken away. Darren's parents told her that she was more than welcome to stay in the home that they and her son and their children had lived in as long as she remained faithful to Darren. Megan agreed. And she did remain faithful until 2011 when she was caught having another man at the house. So Darren's parents told her that she had to leave. Her own family urged her to take this opportunity to get a divorce, but she refused. Her own uncle said, quote, she had no self-esteem, unquote. Megan's mother received a cancer diagnosis during this time, and she lived with her for a little while until she moved into her boyfriend's trailer house. His name is Jimmy Brady. Then the next year, in 2012, her ailing father was having chronic, painful leg and hip problems that no amount of medical intervention was helping. When he could take it no longer, he took his own life. Megan was completely devastated and began drinking heavier. Her mother urged her to enter into a treatment program for alcoholism, to which she reluctantly agreed. Once she was out, she moved back in with Jimmy, who stated that their lives became quite stable. She was being quite loving and motherly to those around her. Her two oldest daughters were nearly grown, and all three were still living in the old house. Megan then got a job at a grocery store bakery for a while, but then eventually lost her job. Then, Megan told Jimmy that she was pregnant. The two of them discussed the pregnancy and how it would affect their lives. She later told him that she had miscarried and she appeared to be upset at the loss according to Jimmy. So in what I believe to be early 2014, Darren, Megan's husband, was released from prison and sent to a halfway house to finish out his sentence. Once he was released from that, he went back to his home that he would now share with his daughters and decided to start cleaning out the garage. Now, sources differ on this. Some say Darren discovered the first fetal remains and others say one of the daughters did. Either way, as the family was going through boxes in the garage, the remains of one of the babies was discovered. Darren immediately called the police. Afterward, Darren called Megan, who was at Jimmy's house, and told her what he had found. She told both Darren on the phone and Jimmy that she had miscarried a child years ago, but was panicked due to the drug use, so she had hidden the remains away. Darren told her that the police were on their way, and Megan then begged Jimmy to give her a gun. She was going to kill herself. So, as you can imagine, more and more infants were found swaddled in cloth, stuffed into plastic bags, and stowed away in boxes amongst the piled-up old memories of the house. The police went to the trailer home to pick up Megan, where she eventually gave a full confession. She stated that she had murdered six of the seven fetal remains found in the garage. Medical examiners completed preliminary physical examinations of the seven babies and sent DNA samples to the FBI. This was to confirm that Megan and Darren were the biological parents. Darren completely denied being the father of any of the babies at first, no doubt from shock, but the DNA tests showed Darren to be the father of all seven babies. The medical examiners also stated the amount of time that had passed with the level of physical decay made it impossible to know with certainty the order in which each of the babies had been born, or more precisely, when they died. Five of the infants had been female. Two had been male. At least one of the bodies was discovered in a chemical that smelled like iodine all were, like I said, full term. The six newborn babies each lived less than two minutes before their mother, lost in a haze of desperation and addiction, pressed her thumbs to their throats and killed them. Quote, depression and alcohol took hold of me the same way drugs did, she said in a statement read by her attorney. I cannot give a reasonable answer why I was capable of such a sick and heinous crime. I held my secret for 18 years. Unquote. She also said, quote, In some small way, I wanted to help them avoid the terrible life I would have given them. I deprived my little babies of the opportunity of life. Unquote. She will spend at least 30 years in prison before she's even eligible for parole. So, as horrible as this story is, we already know that this is not unheard of. Neonaticide is what we call it when a parent deliberately ends the life of an infant that is less than 24 hours old. It is more often committed by mothers than fathers who commit this act to children aged 8 or older, generally. 90% of cases of neonaticide are committed by mothers who are 25 years old or younger. It is exceedingly rare to see this past that age. They usually deny or conceal their pregnancies. They are at an 80% chance of being unmarried and less than 30% are deemed depressed or psychotic. A conservative estimate puts the incidence of neonaticide in the U.S. at 150 to 300 annually, although no official reporting requirements exist, and many cases do go undiscovered. But in this case, Megan was well over 25. She had let a third baby live in between the murders and was married. While drugs were a factor, it is reported that she took excellent care of her daughters. It is also important to note that weapons are almost never used in these circumstances rather the parent is using their own hands and so on drowning strangulation head trauma suffocation and exposure to the elements are all common methods Women who commit neonaticides do not show any major mental disorder yes you heard that correctly in the majority of the cases Also, they mostly have not previously been convicted of violent offenses. So, with a husband, three thriving daughters, and two sets of families to help her, her only excuse was that she chose drugs over her own babies over and over and over, and that, my friends, is, in my most humble and personal opinion, is inconceivable, unforgivable, and irredeemable but what do you think leave me a comment on the youtube video or dm me on instagram leave me a message you can email me at serial killing at gmail.com and thank you so so much for listening we are rounding the end of the october extravaganza i hope you've enjoyed it and we will be returning to our normal regular schedule very soon thank you so much